Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm here with Ben, our fiction specialist. And today we're sitting, sitting across from Tess Woods, the author of Love and Other Battles. Hello. Welcome, Tess. Hi. How are you doing? Thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for making the journey in. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's our pleasure. Um, so, Love and Other Battles, it's one of those generational stories about women. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, it is. It's a three-generation story about Australian women and the story spans across 50 years. So it's from 1969 to 2019. And it begins with Jess, who's the matriarch of the family. She's the grandmother. And the story starts with her as a young woman protesting the Vietnam War and then finding herself falling in love with a drafted soldier, Frank Stone, and the next generation is Jamie, who is Jess and Frank's daughter. She has a relationship in the 90s that's quite toxic and kind of leaves her scarred for life. So in the current story, she's now a single mum juggling work and raising her teenage daughter and looking after her elderly parents. And then finally, there's CJ, who's the 17-year-old teenager. She's a hippie at heart like her grandmother and a talented country musician, but things go really awfully wrong for her when she kind of gets mixed up with a guy who's not a good egg. And the story focuses on all of the women's lives and all their relationships, but particularly what happens when things go quite wrong for CJ and how the family copes with that. God, it's fantastic. It's such a such big larger-than-life story. Um like, how did you go about bringing them all together? Because that's just so much to pack yeah. into one book. <laughs> Great difficulty. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a plotter either, so I, I don't, I kind of don't know what's going to happen until it's happening. So it was just a jumbled mess for a long time. And I wrote all the stories at the same time, so I didn't focus on one and then the other. And so yeah, it took a, a lot of editing. Um, the book was supposed to come out last year, but it actually took me an extra year to write to get all of the stories to gel together. How do you do it? Do you, is it like you, you paint one big glorious picture and then you break it into a jigsaw puzzle and put it back together? I wish. I really wish that's <laughs> how I did it. But the way I do it is I think, oh, I know, I want to write a story about three generations, and then I sit there and sweat it for the next oh. year. <laughs> to figure out how so I really am one of those people that the story kind of reveals itself to me as I'm writing it and I don't really have a destination of where it's going to go so I surprise myself as I'm writing I'm like oh look that happened what do you know yeah well it presents so many opportunities these um these multi-generational and and, um dual timeline stories absolutely Um, and, and it creates these um, opportunities for juxtaposition um, yes. and you get to sort of compare. How, yeah. How, how do they do it? How, how... Yes, yes, yes. Um, there's, what, what, what screams out of this is this kind of um, uh, the desire of the, the young woman to redefine herself yeah. against the, the kind of mode or the design that the parents has, has for their lives. Yes. Um, do you think that's something that's, and a kind of an innate intergenerational thing, or or is that something that's bounced out of these social upheavals, you know, the Vietnam War yeah. and the counterculture and then yeah. all of the yeah. different ways our society has boomed and changed yeah. over the past, yeah. what is it, 50 years? Mm, I, think, I think it's just the way of the world, really, yeah. that every set of teenagers is trying to rewrite the book <laughs> and... 
um, just not so much desperately needing to rebel, but to form their own path and not necessarily what their parents have done before them. So um, I tried to do that with each generation. And then for Jamie, who's the mother in the middle of all of this, um, you know, how do you kind of rebel against hippie parents who don't make you even call them mum and dad and there's no rules and they're smoking pot. And as a teenager, what do you do with that? Like where can you go? Your parents are already, you know, so like, so for her, I thought I'd take her the other way and you'd probably become quite conservative and form your own path that way. So I think things tend to be in a cycle with generations because you have one generation that will try and redefine things and think they're inventing the wheel, but then it's probably coming back. Yeah, I totally agree. I grew up in the Blue Mountains with a lot of people's parents were old hippies and then they went the complete opposite direction. And they're all corporate lawyers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Investment bankers. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. So with um, this story, it's got the three women. Did you find it... um, difficult to write from each perspective because there's a lot going going into that you've got to get into the mind of a young woman in like the 60s and 70s then the 90s and then now yeah how did you do that oh yeah that's probably the part of writing that I find the hardest actually and then getting into the mind of a woman who's 70 um you know compared to the 17 year old and um my struggle when I write is trying to make each character not all sound like me (laughs) not all just middle-aged mums so to bring different um eras to life to bring different ages to life that's the part I find the hardest um with this book actually it was probably a little bit easier than my others because it's the first time I haven't written in a male and um I found men especially hard to write so I was able to relate a little more writing women but I just try and, you know, you just do what you can. I try and sink into that character and think about how they would be responding and reacting and thinking of people I know, like older people, like my nana for writing the grandmother. And I've actually got a nearly 17-year-old daughter, so it's quite easy to relate to the 17-year-old in the contemporary story. And, yeah, so just kind of taking it from there. That's interesting. CJ's story is just there's so much going on there, um, like, I was a teenager not that long ago and just the amount of things that you have to deal with now on top of all of the things that already existed for teenage girls, like the issue of like drug use and then like manipulative, abusive boyfriends. Yeah. That wasn't something that was ever really talked about when I was 17. Yeah. But we've all, I just know so many young girls who now go through those experiences and just deal with this terrible behavior. It's just... And that was just something that jumped out at me when I was reading, going, oh, my gosh, you couldn't pay me to be a teenager again. I agree. I agree. I think there's never been a harder time to be Mm -hmm. a teenager. And people of my generation and older tend to do that, oh, young kids of today, you know, they've got it so easy. But I completely disagree. I think it's hard enough being a teen and having the, the burst of uncontrolled hormones. You make the dumbest decisions of your life when you're a teenager and that's really the essence of being a teenager is to make mistakes and to push boundaries and to grow and learn from that. 
But these kids that are going through it now, they're just under such intense scrutiny. And, you know, when we were teenagers and we would make our stupid mistakes, you never risk someone taking a screenshot of that or uploading it to YouTube and all of your friends, you know, everyone in your social circle having finding out about it, the humiliation of that or the school finding out what you've done. And whereas kids now have that, you know, that they really have to watch themselves a lot more than we did. And I think that extra pressure, as well as for young girls as well, who perhaps haven't got the tools and the the nous to make really good decisions, you know, one selfie can bring you down. And I think that's really, really harsh for teenagers to go through. Has um, crafting Love and Other Battles um, encouraged you to... Um take a harder look or, 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 or view differently your relationship with your daughter or relationship really with your did. mother? Yes, it really did. Um, much more so my daughter than my mother um, because I think I'm one of those parents that I've been one of those parents that is a little bit smug in how close I am to my daughter <laughs> and the amazing relationship we have and thinking that because of our relationship, she would be protected from these things. But as I was writing the book and as I was speaking to and interviewing people who had been through similar things, it really made me realise that what I'm expecting from my daughter is perfection. I'm expecting her to go through her teenage years without a blip because I'm so scared of what happens these days compared to what happened in my time where you make a mistake and move on. And I'm so worried that it would scar her. Um, and it just made me stand back and think, why should my child and this generation be the first generation not to be allowed to make their mistakes? And why are the consequences so hard for them? And just realizing that as a parent, you can't control your teenagers' decisions. You can only be there for them and let them know that there's nothing so bad that they can't turn to you. There's nothing that's going to make me not love you, no matter what you've done. So I've really tried to get that message across to her instead of my other message of, don't you ever get yourself in that position where that would happen? So it's just made me realise that you can't control these things. Um, and hopefully just, you know, the kids just bounce back and move on and it's not the end of the world and seeing that you can get past that and still have great meaningful lives even if you've stuffed up a little bit as a teenager yeah. Yeah. I think that's very good advice <laughs> if you've got a lucky daughter um, I want to talk a little bit about um, oh, this, this, this novel covers so much in it's so, so much, such speed and agility <laughs> jumping and changing so much but um, one of the things that comes out almost immediately is the Vietnam War. Yes. Um, and we meet uh, Jess's husband in yeah. advanced age when yeah. he's in he's in aged care. He's got yeah. Parkinson's, and the first thing we see him do is rattling a newspaper, um, and he's blisteringly offended at this um, announcement that the grandchildren of um, veterans from the First and Second World War are yeah. going to march in front of the living vets yes. of Vietnam. Yes, which actually did happen. They did put the grandchildren of Anzacs in front of Vietnam yeah. vets for Anzac Day. Um, I'm just wondering, like, where, uh, 
Is, is there a personal experience of the Vietnam War in your family or, or is that something you've, you've gone and researched? Yes, there was absolutely no experience at all. Um, I really did the Vietnam War because it, I didn't have a, a passionate interest in bringing the Vietnam War to life. It was because it fitted with my story. I wanted to do the three generations story and the timeline was that it was going to fall around the time of the Vietnam War. And because I'm a sucker for the notebook where it's an older couple reflecting on their lives and there was a war involved, it was kind of a nod to that and the Vietnam War was then the war that I was going to have. So I started off really, I'd watched the Robin Williams movie and that was that was the extent of my knowledge. I'd never done it at school, never really taken a big interest in the Vietnam War. And I have to admit shamefully that I had that stereotype view of Vietnam vets as, you know, bushy bearded motorbike riding, you know, angry people. Yep. Um, and so once I started researching, it just opened the floodgates and I became almost obsessed with it, just finding out the horror of it, really. Yes. Um, and, and as obviously for the Vietnamese and the, you know, 5 million civilians that were killed, which is just a horrific number that you can't wrap your head around. But also I now have a 19-year-old son and to think of him being drafted and in that whole barrel of death where people would sit in front of the TV and see if their son's birthday would drop out of a barrel to see whether they were going to be drafted for war. The horror of that just, yeah, it's, it's really affected me. And something that happened so shortly ago and something that's been so mythologised so quickly yes. and we made all these myths out of it. Yeah, yes. Um, I think the Vietnam vets have had a particularly rough trot because as Australians we were hero worshipping our war our war heroes like the yeah. you know the Anzacs and the vets that fought in World War Two and you know the trench the fought against the Germans and all the trench warfare and all of that was very glorified mm. and Australia was very pro-war because we were out to save the world and then along comes the Vietnam War and it's the first time that Australians were disagreeing with the war that their soldiers were going to. And also it's the first time we had TV and we could see what was happening over there. So I think those two factors really put our Vietnam vets at just a horrible disadvantage compared to the vets that went before them. But when you think about war, the vets that went before them probably, you know, committed exactly the same war atrocities that would happen in any war, but they came back hailed as heroes rather than villains. Yes. It's such a nuanced look at that time, I think. Um, when I look at, like, Jess and Frank's story, yeah. like, because, um, I don't know, I probably leaned more towards the Jess side of that, but it was just interesting to see Frank struggling through that as well. Mm. Um, was that at all, like, difficult to write, like going through that ideological challenge for two characters at once in yeah. a time period that you're not familiar with? Yeah, that story actually flowed really probably easier than the rest from me because I had a Vietnam veteran that I was in direct contact with the whole time, Mike Byron, and he was just wonderful. I used his timelines and he shared anecdotes with me and we really went quite deep with his experiences in Vietnam. So having that real-life person who was saying, you know, yep, you can take whatever you want from my life story and use it, 
um, made the story so much more real to me. And then it was very easy to create fiction from that than having to come up with it completely out of thin air and just based on you know documentaries and reading books, just having that real-life person share their experiences um, and really listening to him. And he's 70 years old now and someone who still carries that real heavy trauma of what they went through as a 19-year-old it's just unfathomable that that's what we chose to do to our young men at the time. You really unpack a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you tell three ro- romances. Yes. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> that's just the nature of those stories. There's, you can't tell them in small, little, like with small little themes and language. Yes. You've got to go the whole hog, I think, which you've done really well. Thank you. Um, but like... So one of the happier aspects of the novel is more the focus on music, which is yeah. really interesting. Like you, you like name drop a lot of country singers like Casey Musgraves. Um, yeah. Oh, I can't remember who. I've got the stars of Nashville in there as yeah. well for anyone that watches the Nashville show. Yeah. yeah so that was, um, was that intentional? Yes, that-, that was very intentional. That's just me living out my dreams on paper because <laughs> I love country music. And I actually went to and fro with my editor quite a bit because she's like, no one in Australia is going to be this excited about you name-dropping Nashville stars. I'm like, no, yes, they will. They will because I love them. They absolutely will. Casey Musgraves was out here a few weeks ago. Yeah. And begging her to do a shoey on stage. So. Oh, well, we, we went it's back good. and forth so yeah. many times over Keith Urban. I'm like, what? You don't love Keith Urban? Who doesn't love Keith Urban? <laughs> Everyone loves Keith Urban. Are Keith Urban? He's <laughs> <laughs> oh, married to Anne Nicole after all. Oh, yes, absolutely. So that was um, that was a really fun part for me to, to, to put into the story. Um, and I did some royal name dropping as well because I'm obsessed with the royals. And so I got to put, you know, Sparkle Like Markle and have their upcoming wedding in there and I've actually tried to put the royal family into my last to to all three books and every time my editors got my book and said why is princess diana in this scene what has she got to do with anything that's happening with this story and so I tried it again with the second book and again they picked it up and just put red lines through it and then this time I just kept it went through you know it goes through a couple of edits and each time it came back and the royals were still in there I think they just gave up and thought, let's yeah. just let her put the royal family into this story and let her get it out of her system. I love the Princess Di reference. As soon as he's like, um, you know, that guy calls um, Jamie, she's like, Princess Di in yeah. the cafe. like, I instantly clock exactly what she looks like. She's such a big cultural touchstone. Yes. She's one of the earliest ones that I remember. Yes, for me too. Yeah. She's probably my first icon. Um, I remember being, you know, seven, eight years old and watching the royal wedding mm-hmm. and just for my whole life I absolutely loved Princess Di. And so now I love seeing her sons and what they're up to and want to write them into my stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to keep an eye out on them for the next one. Yeah, I don't know. I've got a feeling they're going to need this. I think I've had my dash. Um, Tess? <laughs> If you'll indulge me, I want to ask some quick fire questions. Cool. Sure. All right. So, last book you read and adored? Um, well, I haven't quite finished reading it, but I'm almost there. It's the flat share. Absolutely love it. Funny, sweet, romantic. Can't get enough of it. Terrific. Um, where do you write and at what time of day? I write in bed. Ooh. 
says it's very, um, it, it's not very professional, but I write in bed, it's chocolates and tea and there has to be absolute silence. And I used to write, you know, really early in the morning and late at night because I was fitting it around my day job. But now mm-hmm. I've cut down to part-time work, so I tend to write when the kids are at school. Terrific. Um, do you have any tricks to keep yourself going, word count quotas, that kind of thing? No. Can I say yeah. alcohol? Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> the great lubricant. Absolutely can. <laughs> um, uh, the first thing you do after you've delivered a finished book. Usually I sit and cry. You'd find me rocking in a corner in the fetal position. That's a great question. Wow. Um, the first person that you let read your finished work. It's been my best friend the whole time, Daniela. She's a banker. She's got nothing to do with the literary world at all, but she's fantastic. She just mixes my drivel so well. And she's really harsh. She really doesn't care about my feelings. So (laughs) once I've given it to her and seen her comments of this is so gross and I can't even read this page (laughs) and things like that, then my editors look really kind when it goes to (laughs) HarperCollins. So yeah, it's always Dan. Um, uh, favorite children's book? Oh, gosh. I really love Annie's Chair. Okay. Um, can't remember the author, but my daughter loved that book, just about a spoiled okay. little girl who wouldn't let her dog share the chair. And we read that book over and over and over again. Adorable. Favorite writing slash reading snack? Oh, Toblerone. Toblerone. Oh, so good <laughs> um, the, the nicest thing anyone's ever said about your writing? Oh, I think when my daughter, I think I I want my children's approval so badly. So when my daughter read the first few chapters of this one and she said, well, it's not totally crap. That meant that meant (laughs) a lot to me, probably better than any review I've had. (laughs) Partially crap. (laughs) They really are. They are the best for keeping it real. They really are. Um, uh, one bit of advice that stuck with you or one bit of advice you give to others? I really liked the advice that I was given when I first started out by an author who said, nobody's ever waiting for your book until you're really famous. And that made me really work hard to not just write my book and finish with it, but try and get attention for my book and push it out there and realise that I had to champion my own work because as writers we tend to be um, really paranoid about promoting it's it's really hard to self-promote and you feel kind of up yourself and so actually realizing that no one really cared whether I was writing my first book or not that it was up to me to get that attention I think that's something that all debut authors could do with that advice of trying to get people to notice you yeah yeah yeah, it's a hard thing to swallow but it's yeah it is really it's not pleasant but you know someone has to do it and it's got to be you when it's your first one yeah and if you know it's 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 what yeah and just having self-belief also will make other people believe in you Mm. Tess, thank you for coming in and being so generous with your time and this wonderful chat thank you so much thank you both yeah. Um, Our pleasure. Love and Other Battles and all of Tess Wood's books are available from Booktopia right now or head into your favourite local bookshop. Um, published by HarperCollins, Tess, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. 
and for more from the Booktopia podcast and for uh, millions of books to choose from, head to booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.